Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Molena Rice. I'm Alex Galliano. And I'm Will Saunders. You're listening to Episode 5, Astrophysical Beasts and Where to Find Them. In this episode, we'll be discussing a few different mythical creatures that have popped up throughout various fields of astrophysics. So, just to start us off, Will, what's your favorite mythical creature? We'll see if it actually is astrophysical at all. (laughs) (laughs) You guys remember Dragon Tales? I definitely watched <laughs> Dragon Tales. That was a favorite of mine. Yeah, I saw it a lot when I was really little. I don't actually remember it very well. <laughs> Mine's definitely got to be the Lorax. For some reason, I was really drawn to the character when I was a kid. <laughs> I feel like that that character really embodies you, Alex. <laughs> I'm hoping like that's so a compliment. Kind of recycling. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> I always wanted to travel to the land of the Lorax because I thought the the flora and fauna was so cool. I, yeah, the, I was the really big puffy trees. Yeah. They were really yeah. beautiful. Melina, what's yours? Um, Does a heffalope count as a mythical creature? <laughs> I mean, I guess we've all been listing just like movie characters. You'll That's have like to a, remind me what that is. It's like a Winnie the Pooh thing, right? Yeah, it's like an elephant type thing in Winnie the Pooh. Oh, now, I really have to go, now I have to Google this. I think it started out being evil, and then they discovered that it was nice, and they befriended it. It was really cute. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's so much it's been a long time there. for that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cute. <laughs> yeah, it's really sweet. I think it's purple. Yeah, it is purple. My memory could be failing. No, no, you, you're, you're dead on. It's, it's really good. It's kind of like a very small elephant. <laughs> well, we picked... Very specific mythical creatures that, <laughs> unfortunately, astrophysics <laughs> has not been named after. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but we can talk about some slightly more historical mythical creatures that are closer to astrophysics as a whole. So what what different objects are there out there that we can discuss that actually tie in more to astrophysics? Can you brainstorm a little bit? Yeah, when, I, when you mentioned that you wanted to do this topic, I, I thought about it a bunch. I mean, there are so many ancient cultures that connected their religion to the constellations, and they uh, understood the lunar cycle, um, and I think the Mayans were able to predict solar eclipses. Um, and so, of course, the, we end up taking a lot of the names for the objects we discover today and naming them after the original you know, uh, ancient cultures that uh, first discovered them or we name things after uh, Roman and Greek gods, the planets, for instance. But I don't want to get into all that astrology stuff. <laughs> that's that's not science. Astrology, while we may roll our eyes at it, is one of the major ways that people interact with the night sky today. I think that's a win. But it's not science. Well, <laughs> well, it's not science, but it can, we can be used as an entryway to get people excited about it's a fair, STEM. It's a fair point. Right? I disagree, yeah. but I respect the point. <laughs> <laughs> and Thank and you, I mean, Will. it's true that we get a lot of our naming conventions from this mythology because astronomy is such an ancient science. It's been around for so long. We've right. been able to see the stars for so long. Right. Um, so 
because of that, today's episode is focusing on these astronomical objects that are named after mythical creatures, and there are actually tons of them. Yeah, I'm going to start off talking about a couple naming conventions that are maybe a little more unusual in the astrophysics communities, and those are ghosts and goblins. So the astrobite that I'm discussing is called Myrax Ghost and Myrax Goblin, a new galaxy found near the local group by Daniel Burke. And it's from a paper written by Martinez, Delgado, and others in 2018. Now, this story has a couple different twists and turns to it, so first let's start by talking about Myrax which is a bright red star in the constellation of Andromeda. And since we're on the topic of mythology, Andromeda is, of course, the daughter of Cepheus and Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia is another constellation right near Andromeda, and Cepheus is where we get the name Cepheid Variables, which is a type of star we won't talk about today, but it is cool. Greek mythology. Right, so... (laughs) Yeah, bring it all around. (laughs) So, Myrak is actually... I think it's based on the Arabic word for the girdle. It's around the belt of Andromeda. And it's much larger than the sun. Uh, Even though it's cooler, it's intrinsically brighter because it's so large. So it's second magnitude. It's incredibly bright in the night sky. And because it's so bright, historically, it's been really hard to photograph. So when we try to image it in telescopes, we can get artifacts from light bouncing around internally in the telescope. Uh... And we call these artifacts ghosts, typically. That's really interesting, because usually we think of, in astronomy, it's difficult to see objects that are too dim. And so if you don't get enough photons, it's hard to actually learn about an object. But here it's the opposite, kind of like we talked about how we couldn't find moonitesimals, the objects that make up moons in disks around other planets, because maybe the grains were too large for the radio wavelengths we were looking at. So it's really interesting that actually it was millimeter. The grains are too large for the millimeter wavelengths that we were hmm. looking at. And so it's really interesting that this is sort of an analog where it's like a star is so bright that we can't actually understand what's in the field. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little paradoxical. Um, but when you try and image Myrak, you get a lot of different splotches around your image, depending on the, the telescope that you're using. But it turns out that one of these splotches that showed up for a long time near Myrak ended up not being a ghost in the image at all. It ended up being a real object, a lenticular galaxy, called NGC 404. But because of the history of finding these ghosts in the images around Myrak, it's now called Myrak's ghost, a little ironically. It's an imposter ghost. It's an imposter ghost, exactly. It's it's like the Scooby-Doo ghost that you then take the sheet off of, and it's not really a ghost after all. And actually, in 2016, an amateur astronomer, Giuseppe Donatiello, found a smaller and even fainter dwarf spheroidal galaxy in the same field that, kind of tongue-in-cheek, he ended up naming Myrax Goblin. <laughs> Wow, so a star so bright that it's known to create artifacts on telescopes that look at it, this guy was able to still say that what he found was not an artifact. How on earth did Donatello know that? So he didn't know for certain. He actually ended up posting the picture on Facebook that he had taken of the field and asked other astronomers to help identify the object. And he and the first author secured follow-up time on two different major telescopes to confirm its existence. 
Wow, that's pretty incredible. And it's amazing the support that you can get from social media in astronomy these days. Uh, so what do we actually know about Myrak's goblin and what have we learned about it? Do we know much beyond the original observations? Well, lucky for you and for all of our listeners, we at Astro Soundbites have done some digging into the folklore <laughs> and have discovered that this creature is actually a red cap goblin, mm. to be precise. So <laughs> in historical Anglo-Saxon folklore, a red-cap goblin is a murderous goblin inhabiting the border between England and Scotland. They typically hang out in the ruins of castles after major violent events, and they soak their hat in the blood of dead people. So if you see the red from their hat, you know that there's been death involved. It's pretty creepy. It's very creepy. <laughs> this kind of um, aligns with the uh, red and dead galaxies we had talked about last time, because... What what you're saying is that is that this um, goblin, the Mirax goblin, would be a red and dead galaxy, right? Yeah. So exactly, Mirax goblin has no active star formation, and it's populated with small, metal poor red stars. And its surface brightness and stellar composition match other dwarf spheroidal galaxies, such as Ursa Minor and Draco, associated with the Milky Way galaxy system. So you mentioned that these goblins soak their hats in the blood of dead people. Um, do they also hang out in the ruins of castles after violent events, like you said, or is that stretching it too far? That's a great question. And it's actually one of the major focuses of the paper. So from episode one about discs, we know that the Milky Way most likely formed from a major merger event or like a major conflict. So it makes sense that Ursa Minor and the Draco galaxies are also uh, like these red cap goblins. So NGC 404, uh, the major question is, did it emerge from uh, a major merger scenario? And the galaxy has a ring of star formation, and this is usually evidence of a recent collision or an interaction with another galaxy. And in addition, Myrax Goblin is a little more elongated than you would expect for a traditional dwarf spheroidal galaxy. So, these are both points of evidence for uh, a merger event or an interaction for NGC 404. And this would suggest that if it were involved in a merger, then Myrax Ghost is what remains of the galaxy, and Myrax Goblin is now hanging around and is possibly continually influenced by the ruins it's faint red cap shining in the distance <laughs> this is an incredible analogy <laughs> thank you thank you but of course we'll need radial velocity measurements to confirm whether such an encounter is taking place you mentioned earlier that facebook was involved in in making this happen uh was the the, the original discoverer was an amateur no yes yeah, yeah it's, I think it's really neat. Um, it's it's great when amateurs get to really be involved in the publication, get a, a co-authorship, which is it's nice to hear because we, as professionals, we really should encourage a good partnership with with amateur astronomy. It's very important in, in my yeah. field of study, stellar occultations, because amateurs, you know, in different places can make discoveries that uh, professionals can't because it's much harder to move the expensive. Uh, institution-run telescopes, but you could take small telescopes and, and put them all over the place. So it's really, it's really nice and encouraging to hear about that. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing what amateur astronomers have done in solar system mm. science. I mean, the most recent interstellar object was found by an amateur that's astronomer, right. and there have only ever been two found, so that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, in Donatello's case, I think he observed for like 10 hours in total over four nights to Whoa. really find this very, very faint object. So it's incredible what even uh, a personal telescope is able to do nowadays. 10 hours on a small telescope Ten is hours. impressive to get the alignment right and to um, to not have a ton of artifacts and th- to keep the seeing constant with this. That's really impressive. Right. Yeah. Wow. Not only to not have artifacts, but to overcome yeah. the artifacts in an object that's known to have wow. them. Right. Kudos so, to him. Yeah. Kudos to him. Well, that's a truly beautiful paper, and I'm really glad that we had a chance to learn about these ghosts and goblins. Um, but, Will, does your mythical creature have less, you know, creepy, blood, gory stuff, or is it also kind of a spooky mythical creature? Yeah, I think it's a little less gory. I'm going to talk about <laughs> dwarfs, and specifically, M-dwarfs. Cool. So before we go into the science, could you tell us a little bit about what dwarfs are and the mythology behind them? You bet. Uh, I believe dwarfs first appeared in Germanic mythology in the Middle Ages. And I mean, they've taken on so many different forms in different literature, but they're generally described as small. Um, they're, they live in the mountains. They're good at metalworking, among other things. Huh. Um, dwarves, you know, were, of course, in, in Snow White, you had the seven dwarves. <laughs> they're not quite the same. It's a little different, um, but they're they're always small. That's that's very consistent. And so astronomers call the smallest stars that we know of M dwarfs, and they're only about ten percent the mass of the sun. Now M dwarfs, partially because they're so small, are far and away the most common stars. Now are dwarfs the most common mythical creature as well? Hmm. Yeah, I, mythology is just so non-canonical. If you ask uh, J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien, he'll give you a different answer than if you ask, oh, I don't know anyone else who writes about dwarfs. Um, <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien If you ask the, the scholars of the Middle Ages. <laughs> I don't, it's just, yeah, I, it depends who you ask. Fair enough. And there are actually tons of different names for the seven dwarfs, right? So, like, if you read different books, they'll actually have different names. It's not just... The, the actual seven. Oh, I didn't know that. The, 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 I know, you know, you have grumpy, happy, sleepy, bashful, sneezy, dopey, and doc. I, I remember that. I remember <laughs> that was that. so fast. <laughs> I, I do remember. Uh, <laughs> I remember that. I remember yeah. that one. I didn't know there were Moments others. Moments notice. Them super quickly. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I learned at some point that the things you memorize in your uh, preteen years will are, are some of the things you remember the best in your whole life, and that's just one of those things that happened to stick in my brain. <laughs> You know, um, I don't know if that's true for me. <laughs> one play of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves had dwarves named Blick, Flick, Glick, Snick, Flick, Wick, and Quee. Wow. <laughs> Why did Disney stick with those? <laughs> really missed out on an opportunity there. Uh, that's too weird. <laughs> anyway, okay. So which of the ones, let's stick to the ones from the Disney movie. Which of the seven most closely resembles an M-Dwarf? So I'm going to go with Sneezy, but we're going to take a, a bit of science to explain exactly why. Please do. Okay? Hang on. All right. Okay. <laughs> the astrobite I read this week is called A Bare Hot Rock with No Atmosphere, written by Vatsal Penoir. And the paper was published by Kreidberg and others in 2019. So the 
paper here covers an exoplanet around an M-dwarf. M-dwarfs, being small and dim, have a habitable zone much closer in to the star. And they're sneezy because they're very magnetically active. And so they have extreme flares and ejections much more common than the sun. <laughs> and because you have stars that are very close in, they feel the brunt of the sneeze at full blast. It's like they always have a cold. Jeez. So this, this exoplanet newly found by Tess um, at, you know, is uh, quite close in to the M-dwarf. You imagine having a sneeze so strong it blows off an entire planetary atmosphere? <laughs> <laughs> Those poor Those stars. Poor stars. It's probably hard to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that makes sense because your astrobite was called bare hot rock, right? So yeah. that means all of the atmosphere has been blown away. Just about. Um, but how how do the authors actually know there's no atmosphere? How did they observe that? What they use is called phase curve analysis. It comes as part of the transit technique to identify exoplanets. And this gives horizontal structure. What they do is they use Spitzer Space Telescope to observe the planets at different times in its orbit. And so they get a measurement of the planet at different phases. Then they align the phases, and they identify what the heating of the planet is. And they find in a planet with an atmosphere, the heating from the star spreads around. One side is hot, one side is cold, but the hot side is kind of spread around. I mean, think of the Earth. It's not hottest only at you know 12 or 1 o'clock. It's, it's warm and, and hot you know, throughout the day because the atmosphere circulates the heat. But in a planet with no atmosphere, you get one hot spot, and it's always the one directly facing the star. So I feel like I just saw a paper about this. I think uh, they're colloquially known as eyeball planets because of the one hot spot. Ooh, I like that. Oh, cool. That's funny. Then it could be a cyclops. Oh, <laughs> we missed that opportunity. <laughs> we didn't miss it. We just said it. <laughs> so many mythical creatures we didn't even expect to talk about. <laughs> okay, so I'm guessing that means that the authors here actually did find just this one hot spot, and this was one of these cyclops planets then? Well, okay, let's just be clear. I just invented that. That's not a real I term. It. I love it, though. <laughs> We'll propose it. Uh, we'll propose it to the IAU. <laughs> if I ever publish a paper like that, I'll try to bring it into style. <laughs> yeah, the the eyeball itself is over a thousand Kelvin, and the planet is tidally locked, so that eyeball always faces the star, and it's always a thousand Kelvin. So, if I recall correctly, Mercury is like five hundred Kelvin, right? It's not tidally locked. It's Something like that. It doesn't like have that. a hot spot, but one thousand Kelvin is obviously larger than 500 kelvin right so if mercury has right. a really tenuous atmosphere then by logic <laughs> it's possible <laughs> that uh that this planet has would have no atmosphere just by this argument as well right yes exactly it's just too hot to maintain an atmosphere um here's a fun quick fact about mercury one of my professors told me he once calculated uh the total amount of atmosphere that mercury has and it's about as much air as the room that I'm in or you guys are in. It's so little air. Wow. So if we were recording an episode for uh, Astro Soundbites on Mercury, we'd all have to do it in the same room is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> okay. So at this point, we've talked about ghosts. We've talked about goblins. And now we've talked about dwarfs as well. Milena. And cyclopses. And cyclopses. Cyclopses. Very true. Milena, what are you going <laughs> to add to the mix? 
So I'm going to go on the flip side of the dwarfs that we were just talking about and discuss giants. And the astrobite I'll be discussing is called uh, You Spin Me Right Round, Stellar Rotation with Astro Seismology. It is an astrobite by Ellis Avalone, and it's about a paper by Jamie Tyar et al. 2019. All right, get us hype about the giants. What's the mythology? <laughs> so I don't have a lot of enormous analogies that will be extended the way that you guys do. <laughs> um, but they're pretty much like dwarfs except the opposite. So they're really large. Um, there are lots and lots of giants all throughout mythology. So there's, for example, Jack of the Beanstalk has a really famous evil giant. There are a lot of actually like super evil ones in mythology for some reason, but they're also like happy, cuddly ones like in Roald Dahl's big friendly giant, the VFG. There are some nice giants that will help people out as well. So lots of different types of giants. Um, and effectively, they're just really Loved big. that book when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah, it's a good book. I was really into Roald Dahl back in the day. Mm. <laughs> and so, yeah, they're just really large stars. That's effectively why they were called red giants. And they're red. So they are red relative to other stars. They're just relatively low temperature at their photosphere. So maybe imagine like a giant with red skin or something. Yeah. Red hair, maybe. Like a spherical giant. Like a spherical giant. May or exactly. may not be friendly, depending on the context. <laughs> <laughs> and and you mentioned astro seismology, right? Could you tell us a little, little bit about what that is and what they use it for? Uh, yeah. So this is a branch of astrophysics that studies stellar pulsations. Um, so stars oscillate uh, over time, often in a periodic way. Uh, and we can learn about the interiors of stars and different properties of stellar evolution from these oscillations. Uh, so these oscillations are driven by different mechanisms in different stars. So, for example, in the sun, they're driven by convection that's near the stellar surface. So I'd also imagine that these oscillations change throughout a star's lifetime, right? Yeah, so in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which gives you temperature versus luminosity and all the different kinds of stars, um, there's an instability strip. And whenever stars pass through that instability strip, then they end up pulsing in certain ways. Uh, depending on where they are, then they will behave very differently because there, there are lots of different reasons that stars oscillate within different parts of this instability strip. Um, but... A lot of these evolved stars are oscillating because they're periodically expanding and contracting on the surface for whatever reason that is causing them to not be in hydrostatic equilibrium. For example, for giant stars, the outer layers are just expanding and sort of becoming gravitationally unbound and drifting away over time. And so there, this isn't a stable state. It's not just like sitting there happy on the main sequence anymore. So these pulsations can tell you something about the interior of the star, even if you can't see through that uh, outer layer? Yeah, yeah. So you can learn about the insides of the stars by studying what exactly is happening with these pulsations and um, combining that with everything else that you know about the star from other observations. And so uh, effectively what I'm saying is if you shake the giant from jack and the beanstalk then you'll figure out what he had for dinner <laughs> <laughs> nice <Ew. laughs> i haven't i haven't <laughs> <laughs> maybe 
maybe, maybe it doesn't Actually, work quite that yeah stars are a little bit less gross than that but <laughs> <laughs> well i haven't personally tested it myself but i'll pass the message along to jack <laughs> maybe he'd find it useful i i have to ask before we go on you guys have said this field in two different ways uh, melania you said astero seismology uh, alex you said astro seismology i've always heard it as stero seismology uh, we got to get this straight. I mean, what do, do they not know? <laughs> How do you know, we say I, it? I looked this up, and the thing on Wikipedia that I found said like asteroseismology, and I was like, that's that definitely right. wrong. No, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> so I just so picked one. <laughs> the Wikipedia page actually uh, calls it asteroseismology or astroseismology. Okay. It spells the word in two different ways, either with or without the E. But okay. is Wikipedia the final source on uh, pronunciation? It is the source. <laughs> it's crazy because I've heard this word so many times, but I think people just say it quickly, so I can't actually tell <laughs> what that E sound is. <laughs> is that the solution? Should we just speed up this episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just every time that word comes up, just zoom past. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess that maybe it's it's a new field, so they're still kind of working out the the kinks, and and eventually <laughs> everyone will coalesce around one because it's confusing to have two different spellings and pronunciations. The field should be united; it'll help, you know, with with awareness. Okay, we don't in, need to be derailed in by this any anymore. case. Yeah, in any <laughs> case, Malaya, you mentioned you mentioned stellar rotation as well. How does that come into play here? Yeah, so they're the authors here are actually using astroseismology to, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, to learn about stellar rotation. So um, all stars rotate, uh, as we know, and that changes over time. Um, but how that rotation actually changes over a stellar lifetime isn't something that we understand very well right now. So it's really important to understand this in order to get your stellar models correct and to understand all the other parameters in stars. And cores of stars can actually rotate at different rates from the stellar surfaces. So in this paper, they're studying the internal core rotations of the stars using uh, this technique, <laughs> uh, and they're comparing that to the outer layers of the star to learn about the different rotation rates at different layers. It's very interesting uh, how the differential rotation, that is the core and the outer envelope of the star rotate at different speeds, connects mm -hmm. to other things. Uh, I talked about how M dwarfs are sneezy, right? And that's <laughs> because they're, they have strong magnetic fields and they, they rotate at different speeds. The magnetic fields get coiled up they actually twist and then they unwind in this flare and this expulsion of material all of a sudden but it's it's not exactly clear to me how we connect asteroseismology to the rotation that we can observe the authors of this study uh, evolved intermediate mass stars which are two to eight solar masses uh, which are now red giants and so that's the topic of this astrobite and they are studying how the waves that are propagating near the core interfere with the waves that are propagating near the surface. And so this is something that you can see from the light curve, I believe, of that star and how it changes over time. And by studying how these waves interact, we can infer details about the core, such as the rotation period, which is what these authors were interested in. That's amazing. I wondered if you sonified those waves what they might sound like yeah. compared to other things that we've sonified in you should try it out 
<laughs> I'll, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> so what kind of data do we use to understand these trends, Noina? Uh, well, the Kepler Space Telescope has been absolutely revolutionary in astroseismology because it was just staring at so many stars for an extended period of time, several years. Um, and so the authors used the data from Kepler to measure core rotation periods, and they, they actually ended up finding that there was an anti-correlation between the core rotation period and the stellar surface gravity. Um, so sort of to first order, this seems to be evidence that as stars evolve, their cores will rotate more slowly because the more evolved stars will have lower surface gravity uh, because they're expanding and losing these layers over time. And so the photosphere is higher and higher up. And so this is really cool. It's kind of direct evidence where we can study the angular momentum transport between the core and the surrounding envelope over time and how they interact with each other. Okay, so then does that mean that the cores on the surface eventually start to blend together because of transfer of angular momentum between them, and so eventually they'll rotate at the same rate? Uh, yeah, so that appears to be true for the stars that have been observed. Um, over time, the ratio between the surface and core rotation looks like it's getting closer to one in the observed stars, and so it looks like it's going to be rotating uniformly eventually. Uh, but the authors of this study predict that, well, when the authors of this study predict surface rotation periods using their models, then the correlation disappears. So they think that it's probably just an observational bias. So this looks like it's the case from the data, but we don't really have a lot of stars and we don't necessarily have a uniform sample. And so it's kind of hard to make conclusions based on what we've seen so far. Well, on that note, we're going to make conclusions based on what we've seen so far. Because Perfect. this brings us to our one-sentence summaries. Will, what's a one-sentence takeaway from your astrobite? M-dwarfs may be the smallest and dimmest of all the stars. But because they are so sneezy, they can be absolutely <laughs> vicious dwarfs to their planets, removing atmospheres and preventing life. All right, Alex, you're up. Amateur astronomers can and do make valuable continuing contributions to the field, and their discovery of dwarf spheroidal galaxies help us shed light on both galactic mergers and orphaned planets. But they may be murderous, so watch out for them. <laughs> and how about you, Melina? Uh, Asteroseismology has shown us that older giant stars, uh, red giants with decreasing surface gravity, have slower core rotation rates. That and that brings us a little bit closer to understanding how stars transport angular momentum and change their spin over time. So throughout this episode, we talked about a lot of different mythical creatures in astronomy, right? So I'm interested. Did you guys notice any particular? astrophysical themes that were common among them so all of our objects are considered red right which is mm -hmm. interesting because we have giants and dwarves and galaxies but they're oh. all red in some way huh yeah that's true i mean they're all sort of in a way effectively the same temperature right so red giants and red dwarfs or m dwarfs same thing uh, are at the same like vertical slice of the hertzsprung russell diagram um, so that makes them red in the same way, even if they're different luminosities and have totally different physics, right. right? Right, and I guess the red and dead galaxies are called red and dead because without new stars being born, what you're actually seeing are the M dwarves. And the yeah. dust. And the dust, yeah. you're right. Which makes it redder. 
<laughs> we we at Astro Soundbites love dust. Oh. <laughs> Do not tell us another dust fact, Will. <laughs> okay. Yeah, point taken. <laughs> it's interesting, though, Melina, you bring up the, the HR diagram. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a source of potential confusion for people who are, you know, learning about uh, stellar classification that there are the biggest things, the, the giant, super giants, and the smallest, the, the dwarfs, are both red. And mm-hmm. that means that surface is the same temperature, though they're very different. It um, is one of the reasons that many astronomers are shifting to the, um, the Roman numeral classification system that, you know, the, the object categories one, two, three, four, that go at the end of the identification instead of focusing on the O, B, A, F, G, so on, color classification, because it actually more accurately captures the physics and the stage that that star is in instead of just what we can see. So remind me, the Roman numeral classes are mainly distinguished by luminosity of the star. Is that correct? Yes. It's not just luminosity. It's it's more, if you look at the HR diagram, it's kind of like drawing circles around the objects that clump together. So for instance, (laughs) the white dwarfs are on the bottom left-ish. So that's kind of a clump. The main sequence is the line, you know, diagonal through the center. That's kind of a clump. You mm-hmm. have the um, the super giants on the, the top right. That is the coolest and highly luminous. So that's kind of a clump. So it's not it's not just one thing or the other. That's why it's more complicated. That's why yeah. um, it's so much easier to classify by color, and that's what's been done historically. Yeah, that's interesting because they're I think they're called luminosity classes, but I never really yes, thought about the that's fact what that. Called. All the lines, they're not they're not just horizontal luminosity lines. They're all sort of diagonal. So, right. yeah, that's actually really interesting. I wonder, I mean, maybe luminosity just seems to be the main differentiating factor between the classes. Because I, I think on uh, the HR diagram, the radial lines, like the lines designating fixed radius are diagonals, right? That's true. So mm. maybe it's some combination of the luminosity and the radius of the star that gets fed into the l- luminosity classes. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's yeah, possible. Also, yeah. for the astrobytes we talked about, uh, at least in my case, it seems like we're using multiple objects to teach us about how a single object evolves over time because you can't observe that single object evolving by itself. Yeah, that's very true. And I think that's a pretty common way to study objects in astronomy because these time scales are crazy long where you know time scales like a million years might not seem short to us but in an astrophysical context that could actually be pretty short right so in my case we're using evidence from the goblin to suggest evolution history of the ghost right hmm. i don't know if mine would follow that trend exactly i mean it's it's two it's the planet and the star but I, I guess in this case, it's, you know, you use the interaction of the planet and the star to observe the, the transit method. That is, the planet blocks some of the starlight and the star blocks some of the planet light. And that tells you the relative size um, and brightness of the two objects. What yeah. about you, Melina? Um, I mean, they're using a sample of red giant stars. And so there are lots of different stars that aren't exactly the same age, although they're roughly within the same class so they're not they're not wildly different in age um but it's it's using lots of different stars that are at slightly different ages slightly different properties to try to figure out more generically what happens to red giants over time so i think it really does fit in with that theme 
pretty right, well. Right, because you, you can't just wait and directly observe how a single uh, red giant would change yeah. its differential rotation over its lifetime. Right. Yeah. It would take a really, really long time. so uh, i was also interested in sort of like what again we had this theme of mythology throughout the episode and i was wondering what your thoughts are on mythology as something that's ongoing in astronomy if it is beneficial in any way to continually name astronomical objects after mythological creatures um, or if this is problematic in any way because you know this is science i don't know if this is going to make people associate it with magic somehow Uh, what do you guys think i hinted at some of my opinion earlier in the episode i'm not i'm not a huge fan of it um, but convention is really hard to shake and i think for the sake of convention we kind of have to let it go and it's, it's okay but I, I think mm-hmm. it does. I think it does create some risks. We're living in an age now where, for the first time in a generation or two, there's an increase in the anti-science voices. It, it's the anti-vaxxers. It's the flat earthers, and even some of the people who are more marginal than that believe that there's a lot of skepticism in in what science can show. And I think as scientists, it's our duty to be absolutely upfront and maintain the uh, the point of view that we are objective and that we are very straightforward. We present everything as we understand it. And using mythology can get in the way of that. So it requires that we're careful. Well, I don't I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're not completely objective because we're still human, right? Of course. And so there's still that aspect, but I think we at least try to be objective to the extent that it's possible. Um and then actively naming objects after mythological creatures i'm not sure if that undermines that in any way i mean it's also nice to have that cultural heritage because astronomy is such an age-old very true so i'm pretty conflicted on this one i'm not really sure alex what do you think yeah i opt to the cultural heritage point so i i guess i kind of also hinted at having the opposite opinion (laughs) earlier in the episode Uh, but i think that astronomy celebrates a very rich history and also in an age where uh, children and members of the general public are going to be distracted by uh, fantastic things in every direction, right? There's sensationalist mm-hmm. things happening on TV and the movies. Uh, and so if we can capture just a little bit of that uh, magic by getting people excited, even if we have to opt for historical naming conventions or uh, ogres and giants and uh, if we're able to capture that and convert it into real STEM excitement uh, and STEM literacy, then I think that's a big win for the field. And I think that's one of the ways that we're going to have to continue to adapt in the future to continue to captivate and keep people's attention. But that step yeah. is the hard part. Can we convert that enthusiasm into real STEM learning? And if if that's the case, then I'm on board. But I'm I'm skeptical. And I think it's something that we should come back to and, and continue to discuss here. It's a good point. Good point. We'll cover it in a future episode. (laughs) (laughs) We'll say that every time. (laughs) Along with quantum field theory. (laughs) Yeah, so that seems like a good place to wrap up. So that concludes episode five of Astro Sound Bites, Astrophysical Beasts and Where to Find Them. If you want to read the three astrobites that we talked about today or the associated papers, then check out the links in the show notes. 
And if you want to hear more of our fabulous episodes, we now have five full episodes online covering topics ranging from the solar system to black holes to galaxies and all of the stuff in this episode as well. Um, So check out all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Thank you.